0: This month, When Diplomacy Fails, we'll be promoting the Agora Podcast feed, which, if you didn't know, actually has a fair few podcasts of its own, most of which include yours truly, but they also include a lot of people that are not me, but are also part of the Agora Podcast Network, podcasts you may have heard of, such as History of England, American Biography, 10 American presidents and the like, but also others you may not have heard of, which I can't remember because I don't listen to the feed enough, and I'm going to do that right now so that I remember their names. So, you should too. Thanks for listening to When Diplomacy Fails, and if you would like to help out When Diplomacy Fails, remember you can become a history friend by giving a little bit every month. Just go to wdfpodcast.com to find out more information about how to do that, And do keep in mind that if I get five more people doing this, I will give, four times a year, a signed book and t-shirt. Four times a year. I really need to find a proper way to say that, but I haven't really landed on it yet, but there you go. Four times a year, I'll give away a signed book and a t-shirt. Okay, so five more people giving a small amount every month. That would be class. Also, thanks very much for the people who have just given me donations. By just, I mean within the last little while, and I've been too selfish to thank them properly. I don't want to name any names because things get outdated and people look up stuff and people are strange. So I'll just say thank you very much to the people who've given me money. And if you'd like to give me money, you know where to go, guys. WDFpodcast.com Thanks very much for listening, putting up with me, etc. And bear in mind that When Diplomacy Fails is five years old in May. And something special is coming, guys. Ooh, what could it be? I don't know. Mm, you'll just have to wait and see. But I can be pretty much guaranteeing at this stage that you guys are going to... If you're sitting in a chair, you're going to fall off your chair. And if you're standing up, you're probably going to weak at the knees. All that kind of stuff. I am like, have I ever been this excited for something? I know you probably just want me to shut up and get on with this podcast. But I've got to say, I am so looking forward to this five-year birthday. It's its going to be great. There isn't even, I haven't even planned what cake I'm going to have for it yet. But I know it's going to be great. Anyway... Let's start with the episode The Franco Dutch War, episode 9. How do you people put up with me? Anyway, let's get going. Thanks for listening. Mm Welcome to episode 9. In the last episode, we examined the circumstances surrounding William III's visit to Britain, under the shadow of suspicion at home and frustration from his uncle, who believed him far too Dutch and Protestant to be fully clued in on the extent of Charles's plans. That said, though, Charles continued to set these plans into motion, even as William returned home to a divided Dutch Republic in February 1671. It was here that we held up our coverage, as we took some time to explain the character and psyche of Louis, arguably the prime mover behind all that occurred up to 1672 and well beyond as well, really. In a critical bit of setting the record straight, you could call it, we underlined the fact that the 1670s were a very different world to ours, and that because of this we can tend to forget that the quality which motivated Louis above all else was glory in his desperate pursuit of it. The age he was in, the age he lived in and the resources at his command all pointed to a French absolute monarch, determined to put such qualities into practice in pursuit of the noble goal of increased prestige and renown for his reign, regime, nation, what have you. It is here that we resume our coverage now as a Dutch Republic, troubled by the rumours emanating out of London and Paris, seeks to deal with the unravelling situation as best as its leading figure, Johan de Witt, could. In every treaty, insert a clause which can be easily violated, so that the entire agreement can be broken in case the interests of the state make it expedient to do so. Louis XIV. Britain and France irreversibly tied together via the secret Treaty of London thanks to the Duke of Buckingham in the minds of the Cabal but in reality thanks to the even more secret Treaty of Dover known only to the Earl of Arlington and a very few close advisers, the timeline for war with the Dutch Republic was set and there would be no Catholic clause, no excuses and no last minute clemency to spare the Dutch for what was to come. The curious diplomatic path which led Louis to tie his cousin to France and which had led Charles to play his own not-insignificant part in the whole ordeal, has been the topic for our last few episodes. We saw how the Treaty of Dover, signed in top-secret circumstances thanks to Charles's late sister in May 1670, was replaced by the better-known Treaty of London, during Buckingham's trip to France in December that year. The confusion created by the two treaties, the iffy nature of the Catholic Conversion Clause and Arlington's reluctant role within all of these issues have already been covered, so if you need a bit of recapping, go and look at those old episodes now. But by this stage, you should be pretty well set up to cover the period from spring 1671 to the end of 1671, which is what this podcast episode here will try to do. And during this period, or at least in the next episode that covers the final weeks before the war, the scales would fall from Johann DeWitt's eyes and the declarations of war so long planned for by the two cousins, finally came about. By spring 1671, it should be added that money from the secret Treaty of London was beginning to flow into Charles's coffers. Antonia Fraser, in her biography of Charles II, that we've relied on heavily so far, noted that seven-eighths of the subsidies agreed upon with Louis would actually end up in the Navy's hands. Such facts demonstrate what kind of war Charles expected to fight and what arm of the state in particular he believed was the most essential to the coming war with the Dutch. Perhaps an element of absolution was also involved. Charles may have hoped that by ploughing the Royal Navy full of dough he could aid them in the frantic quest to rebuild, rearm and reconquer and thus help them, well, revenge themselves upon the Dutch for the disaster at the Medway. It cannot be overstated how much the desire for revenge motivated Charles. Indeed, I would estimate that Charles, far more so than Louis, who was firmly determined to achieve some glory for his name and reign, felt the past slights of the ungrateful Dutch Republic far more deeply than his cousin Louis did, and Charles wished to make them pay for the humiliations that London had suffered at their hands, far more so than Louis wished to make the Dutch pay for the whole Triple Alliance affair. That the Franco-Dutch War cannot be told without Charles's participation, a strange fact since, well, his name isn't even in it, and neither is England's, is a fact we've already encountered, but it rings true again here. The scar that Medway had left upon Charles's psyche was so deep because of the integral British insistence on their own sense of mastery over the seas. An island nation of Great Britain had not yet been formed by the 1670s, though cabal member and Scottish stalwart the Earl of Lauderdale had tried to bring union about in the 1660s. Yet, Charles clung to the notion that England's mastery or supremacy over the seas was an essential part of her identity as a kingdom. Furthermore, that kingdom's mastery gave him, as that kingdom's king, the opportunity to allude to such mastery as he talked up his country's position. The Dutch, of course, had laid bare the truth of the matter. Charles no more had mastery over the seas than the Dutch had mastery over land. They could be beaten in those seas and beaten badly, with the right method and under the right circumstances. To erase this fact from the historical record, Charles depended on his navy performing on the day and demonstrating that it could claim the same mastery which Elizabeth I had once proclaimed to Spain, at least in Charles's mind. This determination added to his declining attitude towards the Dutch, and it should go without saying that as the clock ticked down towards the scheduled declaration of war in March '72, Charles became less and less willing to keep up the appearance of the Triple Alliance and became more bombastic, aggressive and impatient in tone. Of course, this wouldn't do for the Parliament, whom Charles had been leading on a wild goose chase for the past few years, Though they had only returned to session in October 1669 after being prorogued for 18 months because of their own failure to commit funds to their king, Parliament nonetheless maintained a steady interest in the diplomacy Britain allegedly engaged in. I say allegedly because in the curious world of the 1670s, the diplomacy which Charles presented himself as taking part in to Britain's MPs and the diplomacy which those in the know understood Britain to have committed to were two very different policies. Even as the Earl of Arlington understood that an anti-French policy, or at least a policy geared to gel well with the other Protestant powers in Europe, Sweden and the Dutch, was immensely popular in Parliament, he'll have you know, he also understood that his master Charles would not have it. Aside from taking French money and flip-flopping over Catholicism, both of which were minor accusations to level at Charles, but which some historians have underlined as examples of that Stuart King's deception, for me the real teller is Charles's contentment with the policies that so thoroughly hoodwinked his MPs. So committed was he to the end goal of revenge and war against the Dutch that He didn't seem to accept that MPs in the majority didn't care very much for such revenge, and in fact they saw the French as the greater threat to Britain's position. It would be wrong to present the Dutch ambassador to France, Peter de Groot, who we all know and love, or his colleague in London, Conrad von Buningen, as oblivious to the storm which was brewing in Europe. Johan de Witt, as we have seen, was well informed by his agents in the two capitals, and while history has presented him as mostly unknowing of what was to come, the reality was that DeWitt was prevented from operating against the troubling news by a combination of factors. First, he found himself, though remarkably well-informed of Charles's hurt feelings and Louis's ambitions, unable to fully believe that both monarchs would so willingly attack the Republic, and quite blatantly as well. His sense and cynicism as a statesman convinced him that a war alongside the French would be so unpopular in London that Charles would surely never agree to it. Especially because he understood, or DeWitt at least liked to think he understood, how the British Parliament and all its systems worked. In this he of course underestimated Charles's scorn for transparency, as well as Charles's determination to get what he wanted regardless of the consequences. A second point, DeWitt was understandably preoccupied by the actions of William of Orange, an individual whom DeWitt recognized as his major domestic enemy and the only figure really capable of sowing the considerable discord against him to necessarily topple his regent regime. Third, and in line with this, De Witt was hopelessly paralysed by a divided situation at home, where Dutch statesmen argued over provincial matters and made claims which ranged from an insistence that the coming danger was being overblown to increase Holland's influence and thus to its own position, to the idea that promoting William III to his ancestral offices would somehow placate the English. These views did vary depending on where one went in the Republic, but we must remember them if we are to give a fair account of why Johan de Witt, who we know now as the wily and capable statesman of the Netherlands, essentially, seemed so unprepared for what was to follow. As it happened, both monarchs of France and England knew who they were dealing with. They knew that the situation in the Republic was tense, especially following William's promotion in recent months to First Noble, with the caveat that he could vote and be present on debates in the States General, thereby increasing his reputation and notoriety among the Orange Party. Had DeWitt been fortunate enough to occupy Arlington's position, or had he monopolised his control over a given Parliament, as Louis' ministers for war, economics, the Navy or foreign affairs consistently managed to do, then the Grand Pensionary would have had a far easier time of it and would have been far better equipped to deal with the chaotic situation. Unfortunately for DeWitt, though, history would largely gloss over the mind numbing details of Dutch domestics, since as we know, history doesn't like complicated stories, see Exhibit HRE, and would instead blame DeWitt almost wholly for not being aware of what was coming. In fact, DeWitt was between a rock and a hard place. Not only did he strongly suspect what was coming and in time would be certain of it, but he could do almost nothing to pull his beloved country back from the brink of disaster. Thus, when Conrad von Buningen left on a special mission to London in early 1670, he did so on the understanding that, as an experienced and respected Dutch diplomat, he would be able to turn the situation around. Communicating regularly with Peter de Groot in Paris, these two men, alongside DeWitt, forged a correspondence which today reads like a gradually more depressing tale of the terrible reality and of the situation to all three men becoming more and more apparent. What van Buningen hoped to achieve by travelling to London was twofold. He hoped to emphasise that the Prince of Orange had recently received his promotion as First Noble and warmly endear himself to those English statesmen he met on this basis. He was also granted permission to give concessions to the English East India Company at the expense of its Dutch counterpart. Peter Gale's masterful account of these dealings in his book on orange Stuart relations, which unfortunately for us only goes up to 1672, captures the provincial tensions in the Republic at this point. Gale recounts, with a palpable level of frustration in his tone, how the province of Zeeland recommended van Buningen offer concessions to the English East India Company because, wouldn't you know it, the Dutch East India Company was mostly operated by Holland, so the Zeelanders would feel little of the pinch that followed. These kinds of divisions and petty animosities anticipated what was to come between the Dutch provinces, who by this point were anything but united. So Van Buningen granted concessions and talked up the fact that William had been promoted in the Republic's confusing apparatus, a fact which unfortunately didn't really get him much attention, nor did William's uncle Charles seem as pleased, as Van Buningen and indeed most of the Orange's party back home hoped. For a time, the idea went in the Republic that Charles would be more conciliatory if his nephew was known to have received promotions in line with what were believed to be his birthright. It is highly unlikely, though, that Charles understood the Dutch system enough to even grasp what a first noble was. To be honest, I don't really blame him. And even if he did, by summer 1671, when Van Buningen began to actually make his presence felt in London, Charles' plans were already set in stone. In addition to ingratiating himself on his hosts with his smooth-talking and apparent willingness to give ground, and actually, English agents were warned of his smooth-talking before he arrived... Van Buningen was meant above all to soothe Dewitt's concerns and those of his peers by plying some commitments out of Britain towards the Triple Alliance. In particular, Dewitt wanted the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I, to be allowed to join the alliance, thus greatly enhancing its power and making it a quadruple alliance. By this point, we know that Dewitt was tied, whether he liked it or not, to the Triple Alliance, which replaced his preferred policy of a single alliance with France, as well as a few other powers, like Denmark, for example. By asking for Leopold's inclusion, De Witt was essentially going for broke. He was trying to get the best deal he could out of the bad hand that he believed the Triple Alliance had always been. The Triple Alliance had, for its own part, run into problems over the nature of subsidies in the previous months, and the idea that Spain should pull more of its weight, since the arrangement greatly increased Spanish security, was a strong one. Sweden was the loudest complainer in this case, rather than London, since the Swedes were largely broke by this point and they were dependent on foreign subsidies, such as those offered by German princes to stay away, and by the French to keep them sweet. The apparently contradictory fact that the French would be paying the Swedes even while they were in a triple alliance which seemed ostensibly set against them, demonstrates the fact that Louis and his...
1: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: Ministers accepted the importance of the Swedish card. It was a card they would play in the future, as we'll see, but for now, Louis' tacit acceptance of Sweden in the Triple Alliance, as he funded their armies, don't forget, kept Stockholm's leaky finances afloat. The Swedish insistence that Spain should also pay for the de facto protection that the Triple Alliance brought, an understanding which the Swedish ambassador in London was under when he had communicated the details of the alliance back home to his countrymen in early 1668, greatly troubled De Witt, since... By now, Charles was clearly in no mood to get Spain to do anything, and this looked like the Dutch would have to stand in for British diplomats in Madrid and convince the Spanish to provide money to Sweden, even while those Dutch agents fully expected the Spanish never to provide the funds. Inserting the Emperor would thus insulate the Dutch, and perhaps even the Spanish, from any troublesome moves that France or England might try to play, and England's approval of it would go some way towards easing De Witt's concerns and dashing out the rumours, since it would prove that London was at least still serious enough about the agreement to consider bettering it as time went on. Peter Gale notes, though, that... Van Buningen's efforts in England were doomed to failure from the start. The only possible remedy would have been direct contact with Parliament, without the King's knowledge, and if needs be against his opposition, but to risk that the ambassador would have to grasp the impending danger to the full and that he failed to do. He noticed that public opinion was predominantly anti-French, and took this as an assurance that the English government would be unable to sign a separate treaty with France. Yet Gale continues that all had not entirely escaped Van Buningen's notice, in particular the recent and not-so-secret mission by the Duke of Buckingham to France, which produced the rumoured Treaty of London in December 1670 and formed the nucleus of Anglo-French cooperation for the time being. Although, of course, Van Buningen didn't know the actual detail of what Buckingham had agreed to with the French, and although Buckingham's treaty wouldn't become official until December 1670, while the Duke lived and socialised there in the meantime, Van Buningen would certainly have had cause to feel uncomfortable, as Gale noted when he wrote. Buckingham's mission did, however, make Van Buningen uneasy, and there were other storm signals as well, but he continued to let himself be fobbed off with reassuring explanations. Meanwhile, his own negotiations bore no fruit. The English refused to consider the inclusion of the Emperor, or to collaborate in the tariff measures against France. Instead, van Buningen was showered with complaints about books and medals commemorating the raid on the Medway and the Peace of Breda. This looked very much as if the English were trying to pick a quarrel, and it was with great reluctance that Witt forced through a number of resolutions designed to remedy some of these English grievances. These missions all formed background detail to the situation which greeted William after he travelled home to the Republic in February 1671, but Louis had also been busy diplomatically and militarily by that point. For some time, Louis had been undertaking the unenviable task of doing some German groundwork for the coming war. He could be quite certain that the French Bishop of Munster, Bernhard van Gallen, would be only too happy to invade the Dutch Republic, as he had done during the Second Anglo-Dutch War less than a decade before. In addition, French closeness with Bavaria meant that Louis could rely on a level of military aid once the war began. While he sought to deal with the scattered German microstates, He also dealt with the Holy Roman Emperor. In a series of winding negotiations which had begun in the late 1660s, Leopold, Holy Roman Emperor, signed what he believed were several treaties with the French aimed at securing the Austrian Habsburg flank against French aggression, in preparation for the Ottoman resurgence which was expected to come at any moment. In the event, Leopold would have to wait another decade or so before the Turks came knocking, and when they did, boy was that knocking loud, but in the meantime, he signed a series of treaties with Louis, each one more important than the last. Those treaties, a few of these we've encountered before, but just a recap, began in sixteen sixty eight with an agreement to partition the Spanish Netherlands and Spain itself should Carlos die. But this shouldn't lead us to believe that the Holy Roman Emperor and Louis got on well together in any sense. Even while the negotiations dragged on between the Habsburgs and French up to November 1671, both sides were constantly blowing hot and cold, to the extent that Conrad von Buningen believed he could forge a treaty with Leopold and use the Emperor's friendship to strengthen the Triple Alliance. But Leopold, for his part, wanted no part of the Triple Alliance by this stage, or for that matter, Western European affairs. As we saw already, By 1671, Leopold believed he was at a distinct disadvantage. He saw the Turks as increasingly volatile along the border, since their loss in the previous decade. So Leopold expected a new campaign in the East soon. While he was also increasingly concerned that his Spanish Habsburg cousin was not long for this world, and would thus soon expire, throwing Europe into a tizzy when he did so. As it happened, Leopold was not far off the mark. The Turks were planning something big. In fact, they were planning a massive campaign of revenge which would only be halted at the gates of Vienna, and Carlos's death would throw all of Europe into chaos in yet another war. The only thing was, these two events would not happen at the same time, but in rapid succession. The Holy Roman Emperor, and thus his vast array of allies, couldn't have known that they had the guts of a decade to agitate against the Sun King without much bother from the Turks, Leopold realised, perhaps too late, just how great a threat France posed to the New Order of Europe, but he didn't do himself any favours in the years before 1672. Even considering the fact that he was scared of the Turks or what they might be planning, in November 1671, as DeWitt continued to hope against all hope that the Holy Roman Emperor would be added to the Triple Alliance, the Holy Roman Emperor signed an incredible deal promising neutrality in the event of a Franco-Dutch war so long as Louis promised to respect the Treaty of à la chapelle which had ended the War of Devolution, and also not to attack the Spanish Netherlands. Although these treaties suggested a rapprochement between the Habsburgs and French, all that it truly involved was a French triumph. The Franco-Habsburg relationship was not improving. Leopold was merely preoccupied with what he believed were bigger things, It was only when the war erupted and when the struggle began that Leopold saw the conflict not as separate from, but as a major part of, his constant struggle to maintain his family's position in Europe. In a sense, you could say that the scales fell from his eyes as well. A key point to make, and one which we'll come back to in the future, is the forgotten fact about this era and those which preceded it, and that's the issue of mercenaries. It shouldn't surprise us that a state the size of the Dutch Republic relied on mercenaries to defend its borders, since its own people were busy sailing, trading, or both. Certainly a military history existed in the Netherlands, one which the Orange family furthered, as their campaigns against the Spanish advanced their legends skywards. Yet in the years after the 80 Years' War, the Dutch had focused more on their naval capabilities, with the result that less men were available for the army. At the same time, though, this was balanced out because The prevalence of trade meant that more money was available, and then this money could be placed on a drip to ensure the reliable supply of crack German mercenaries. Again, it shouldn't surprise us that some of the smallest German states on the Dutch border, or at least nearby, were famous not for their material exports, but for the exportation of their soldiers. The infamous image of the Hessians serving in Britain's war against America shouldn't lead us to forget that Britain in the 1770s were adopting a practice which the Dutch were very comfortable with by the 1670s. What does this practice of hiring German mercenaries have to do with what Louis was trying to achieve with his German diplomacy, Zach? Well, consider the limits of Dutch options if the mercenaries that they had for so long relied upon and accessed through their money drip were suddenly not available because Louis had either hired them, persuaded their suppliers to shut off their drip to the Dutch, or had scared them away through other means. This would leave the Dutch Republic virtually defenceless and it would force the Dutch to rely on their own citizenry for military land defence, something they hadn't truly done in a generation. By November 1671, then, Louis's diplomacy had tied up the Holy Roman Emperor on top of the Emperor's usual allies, which were now bound to him militarily. One ruler that Louis hadn't just been able to convince, though, was the elector of Brandenburg, Frederick William, who's dipped in and out of our story many times. Initially, the Great Elector was caught between the obligations to his emperor and the fear he justifiably held of massive French forces. So he decided, with the appearance of Leopold secretly saving face in the 1660s, he would do so too with an advantageous treaty with Paris. In January 1670, Frederick William agreed to such a treaty, though it was not directed against the Dutch explicitly. The Great Elector, it should be emphasised, had no intentions of invading the Dutch but he was in a difficult position much like his emperor, arguably more so in fact. To the north was the considerable force of the Swedish Empire, for the moment going through the throes of yet another regency but soon surely in a position to strike ambitiously into Pomerania once again and complete their encirclement of the Baltic by edging Brandenburg out. Frederick William was also angling for the throne of Poland for his son, and he needed French diplomatic support for this, which Louis, of course, duly promised. Yet, one can detect a level of reluctance in the great elector's moves, above all because he recognised Louis as the most formidable of all the powers on the continent, in fact he was one of the few that did at this stage, and he knew that his neighbours should join their forces against France, not appease the French if they were to ensure their security. Frederick William had been impressed by the Triple Alliance and DeWitt's formation of it, but when his agents informed him that DeWitt had preferred the previous arrangement, that of a straightforward alliance with France, and that DeWitt had been largely pushed into agreeing to it, it seems the great elector began to understand what was going on. Of course it would be wrong to present Brandenburg as being well informed enough to know of Charles II's involvement in the Triple Alliance or of his defining hatred of the Dutch and his desire for revenge, but Frederick William, recently entering into his fifties, had for some time felt a level of responsibility to his Dutch Calvinist neighbour. This was because, surprise surprise in the familial world of the 17th century, the Houses of Orange and Hohenzollern had intermarried, owing to the fact that William of Orange's aunt had married Frederick William, which meant, in fact, William III was technically Frederick William's nephew. The fascinating European family tree notwithstanding, Frederick William began to fear that Louis had given him a raw deal only months after his agents had secured what was essentially a neutrality treaty for Brandenburg, complete with other benefits for Frederick William like support for his Polish candidacy and an agreement for France to remain neutral if Sweden attacked Berlin. Frederick William had seen a number of ill omens come to pass. The League of the Rhine, if you can remember back this far, was a strange coalition of German princes, developed by Cardinal Mazarin in the late 1650s for the sake of fostering French influence along the Rhine, and the army of this league marched against the Turks for a brief campaign in 1664, but it was quietly dissolved by its varied members in the late 1660s on the pretext that Louis was behaving too aggressively in the Spanish Netherlands. This was strike one for Frederick William, who had viewed the League of the Rhine as a convenient tool to strategically pressure the Emperor and proof of Louis' benevolent German policy, hardy-har-har. With its lapse, the great elector found it much harder to put strategic faith in Louis' promises or French policy, and this suspicion was confirmed when Louis shockingly invaded the Duchy of Lorraine in August 1670. For Frederick William, having signed with Louis a little more than half a year beforehand, This aggressive invasion of a duchy just on the French border, which was not at all provoked, was strike two and reason enough for him to distance himself from the Sun King, come what may. Frederick William began to align himself closer to his orange nephew and promised neutrality on favourable terms if the Dutch were attacked, which still wasn't that much better than the agreement he had with France. But then in November 1671, Strike three came. One of Frederick William's agents learned of Leopold's agreement of neutrality with Louis. Almost immediately, the great elector promised 20,000 troops for the Dutch if the French attacked, and he began to pressure his German neighbours to do the same. This prospect of a German figure, respected as Frederick William was, sending his agents out to feel for potential Dutch aid, was very dangerous to Louis, Not only might Frederick William gather enough German rulers together to commit a sizable force to the Dutch defence, but by so operating and treating with the minor German rulers, Frederick William might discover just how deep Louis' plans to enforce neutrality on the very German rulers actually went. Armed with this knowledge, Frederick William might go to the Emperor, and with some luck he may have been able to persuade Leopold to abandon his neutrality, that Leopold would abandon Louis's neutrality deal after only just signing a treaty with him was unlikely, but Louis likely found it more inconvenient that Frederick William was disturbing his carefully laid plans. Frederick William didn't make any secret of his intentions either, to the extent that the French ambassador in Berlin loudly complained of Louis's displeasure at the Prussian court. Louis didn't take the interference in his plans lying down. If the so-called great elector wanted to meddle, then he would meddle too. It was time to see just how resilient this elector truly was. In late 1671, Louis began the first of his many diplomatic campaigns to entice the Swedes not merely out of the Triple Alliance but into a war against his enemies. On that list was now the Elector of Brandenburg. If the disappointments, frenzied activities, contradictory treaties and second guesses of the involved powers by late 1671 told a story it was one of impending chaos above all. A strange pall hung over Europe as winter engulfed the continent. To Louis, it was the last peaceful winter he would enjoy for some time, arguably for the rest of his life, and he relished the thoughts of what the following spring would bring. His cousin in London wasn't much different. Despite the desperate efforts of Arlington to treat with the Dutch, the Brandenburgers, the Emperor, anyone... By now the weary Earl had come to accept that a war with the Dutch alongside France was inevitable. He only hoped that England would not have to bear the brunt of its cost. Johann De Witt, though we've seen very little of him in this episode, was also highly active in his own efforts. As usual though, De Witt had to spend just as much time worrying about enemies abroad as he did enemies at home. Almost as soon as William had returned home, DeWitt had been beset by calls to appoint him Captain General of the Dutch Armed Forces, a state of affairs which DeWitt insisted he could not tolerate, and which he upheld, went against the terms of the Perpetual Edict, which had banned the office of Stadtholder, and looked very unfavourably upon the position of Captain General, which by the terms of that treaty had been granted to an experienced Swede, a Field Marshal Verts, to make up for the lack of Captain General. DeWitt was forced to rally against these domestic troubles just as the international situation was becoming truly worrying. Louis's invasion of Lorraine and his injection of its duke over the space of a few months, a man by the name of Charles IV, had demonstrated that Louis would not tolerate potential sources of opposition, especially not on his borders. But what DeWitt actually believed it meant was that Louis was preparing a future campaign by removing potential military threats, such as Lorraine had been to France during the Thirty Years' War. By ejecting Charles IV, Louis secured his borders along the Rhine and acquired some pretty sweet forts, while the Emperor, despite the terms of the Peace of Westphalia, did nothing. Considering these flashpoints, the limits of his diplomacy, the lack of Dutch allies or options by late 1671, and the increasing belligerence of England, it is little wonder that De Witt compared the Republic's position to a ship approaching a terrible storm, The metaphor was both fitting and poignant. Already the Grand Pensionary was gathering Holland's vessels back from their distant trade journeys. Each one of these returning vessels were sailing into a proverbial storm, as DeWitt now appreciated, but he also accepted that the fate of the Republic rested upon those vessels' fortunes. What he could not have known was precisely how fraught the following year was to be.